Welcome to EdTech Examined, a series about educational technology and what you need to know. I'm Eric Christensen. And I'm Chris Hans. Well, welcome to another episode of EdTech Examined. How's it going, Eric? I'm doing great. We have uh, an eclectic collection of articles today. Partly due to the lack of education news, which is typical in the summer, but I think we can make it work. I think we can uh, cobble something together. So uh, what should we start with today uh, from like a news standpoint? Probably maybe a a good one would be like a a follow-up from last time where OpenAI so this was an article from Decrypt where OpenAI has quietly shut down its AI detection tool. And uh, I mean, this was something that we touched upon last episode uh, that uh, these uh, AI detection you know, tools are not that reliable. They, they basically can go and create both false positives and false negatives. And so, uh, yeah, it's interesting that OpenAI just shut it down. It's interesting. Yeah. So it's interesting. It says the chat GPT creator, OpenAI quietly unplugged its AI detection tool, AI classifier. That's, that's right. I couldn't remember what it was called last time, uh, last week because of its low rate of accuracy. Uh, the explanation, um, was not in a new announcement, but added in a note to a blog post. And so this, the quote from OpenAI is said, they said that we are working to incorporate feedback and are currently researching more effective uh, provenance techniques for text uh, and have made a commitment to develop and deploy mechanisms that enable users to understand if audio or visual content is AI generated. So they've shut it down and they're going to try to create another tool, I guess. Who knows? I mean, I, I think this is a, stems from a, a more fundamental issue because you have the large language models, the LLM that contributes to the uh, the algorithm to actually generate this content. I mean, how how would you be able to detect it when you have all this like you know volume of data and uh, with the reliability? I'm still surprised that Turnitin is still you know giving uh, kind of like that they have such high accuracy. Although there's a, it's very fine print, right? Uh, so again, I I'm of the opinion, and we talked about this last time that you should just throw that out the 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 window that you know you won't be able to detect it. So you got to change your assessments altogether. Yeah, I just expect a higher level of perfection. Uh, assume that people are going to use it. Yeah, or the questions should be different. That uh, you know, I. Uh, this uh, these um, uh, AI writers, whether it's uh, you know ChatGPT, Bing, whatever, and there's probably a plethora of others. If they weren't present in the class, they're just going to be guessing, right? So if you go and make a question where it's like reflecting on this so and so, you know, activity that we did in class, or this guest speaker that showed up, I mean, it's literally going to just be making up uh, a bunch of nonsensical information and. If you handed that in, it might be written great, but it actually won't answer the question and contribute to probably like a, a failing grade, right? So, 
Yeah. And this, I mean, this kind of runs off the back of other articles. I mean, we covered, I think we covered this last time. There was another article that you found from MIT technology review that said AI detection tools uh, are really easy to fool. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So we're at a kind of a point where uh, there's no way to really ban this stuff on campuses. Um, there's no reliable tool to determine what is AI written and what isn't. So your two options are either, like you said, to change the question or change the expectations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, interestingly enough, uh, so just recently I had my, uh, in the business communication course that I teach, we just had our uh, writing test. And uh, right after the writing test, after the students completed it, uh, we had a class. It was, this is online delivery during summer. Uh, but it, it was interesting that uh, the students, many of them didn't use AI again. And uh, it, it was interesting because the, uh, some of the comments that came back was that um, it might take them more effort than to use their own brain and just apply uh, the information. And again, uh, I've shown them, I've taken uh, scenarios and run them through uh, both um, ChatGPT and Bing and shown them how it isn't actually comprehending the information that we're discussing in class. And if you handed that in, it would lead to maybe a lower uh, test score. You know, and I, I think that will came into play, uh, especially given that you're time constrained, right? They had 80 minutes to go and complete this uh, assessment. So. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, it's interesting, I think about this, and it kind of relates to another article that you um, provided also from MIT, which was ChatGPT can turn bad writers into better ones. And so this kind of speaks to uh, this article kind of gives, you know, examples of how people could use, uh, you know, a large language model AI to kind of improve uh you know, kind of, I guess, some of their original writing or what they already come up with. So, uh, again, so like this is a good, I think, a, a alternative to perhaps some of the panic about the the reality that people are going to be using these things in a in an educational, like in an assessment environment. Yeah, for sure. Even I had a student, um, uh, you know, is an international. Well, uh, is here, but it comes from a another country, and um, you know, one of that their kind of apprehensions about writing is just sometimes the grammar side of things. And so using these type of tools, that student feels more uh, confident about, uh, you know, any kind of grammatical issues or sentence structure. So it's not that they're using it to go and write the, the actual submission, but just running it through almost like a Grammarly and just making uh, kind of fine tuning what is being submitted. So again, it's, yeah. it's a tool just like any other tool that you would have. Is it better than Grammarly? I mean, I use Grammarly still because it's in the browser and it just works. But uh, do you find that it does a better job than that? I mean, I haven't used Grammarly for a while now, uh, but uh, I I think it's getting better. I mean, as uh, we talked about when uh, we first talked, started talking about these AI writers, uh, I found like ChatGPT 3.0, a lot of times it was using passive voice as opposed to active. I think from a grammar perspective, like it was uh, correct. I mean, it, it, I didn't see any kind of issues from a grammatical side of things, but there's certain nuance that you want to go and put in place. And, I, and again, I think also you want to go and add your 
bit of flavor and that personality to it. But um, overall, I mean, it is, if you use it in that sense, I mean, it's like what we talked about. If let's say you're encountering writer's block, you could get it to spit out, you know, five different versions of that paragraph or that sentence, and it'll at least get you out of that rut and keep you, you know, the momentum going. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, from a, a, I don't think I've never seen really much from a, a, any kind of grammar uh, side of things. It's just more stylistic. Mm -hmm. Um, we have another follow-up topic um, from one of our earlier episodes. So in an, an older episode, I don't remember the number, we talked about uh, Microsoft 365, which is the rebranding of Office 365, um, is interesting to education since, I mean, while a lot of us are Google campuses, you know, Microsoft Office and particularly Microsoft Word is kind of the gold standard for people who are writing uh, you know, their papers, they need proper citation tools and stuff or foot and footnoting tools and stuff like that. Like, I just don't find the other uh, web-based editors to really up to stuff. So most schools provide office to their students and Microsoft, of course, promised that they're going to start rolling out uh, their co-pilot AI tool. Uh, I guess which would allow you to, you know, create a draft document, create an outline, you build your document, and then you can tell it things like, uh, you know, build a PowerPoint presentation based on this document, and then you can go and edit it and and all of that stuff. So um, it turns out that this Microsoft 365 Copilot will cost $30 per month per user. So what, what do you think about that? I mean, I was, uh, I, my first initial thoughts were that it, this is expensive. I mean, it's, it's one thing, like tw even $20 for ChatGPT uh, plus, is expensive but now this is ten dollars more and i would imagine this is probably us dollars as well so uh but imagine you have a, a corporation that has to give get this license for every employee or i'm i mean a question came up but we actually uh, touched on this uh, when this announcement came up um in class and the students asked me like here at mount royal uh we are a google uh environment uh, school but we do provide our students um, access to uh, the office suite and so the students asked me do you think that we'll get co-pilot i would imagine not i don't see us going and spending 30 dollars per student you know uh, but who knows maybe they can give us some sort of educational discount or maybe even just waive it but uh, yeah, it was, i think the the price is hefty for sure well and I'm trying to find like, so can, is this going to be something that's available to any user or does it have to be like a business premium subscriber? I mean, right now, uh, according to this uh, CNET article, it mentions that you have to be uh, either those enterprise, like three, five business standard or business premium user to get it. Oh, wait, okay. no, but that's, so it's not going oh, wait a second. To end of You'll get that at no cost if you're one of those. Right. So as it, can you get it through, like, I mean, if I go into Microsoft 365 and, and want like an individual plan, does it, does it work? Uh, apparently their plan, according to this article in the future, you will be able to get it as a standalone product. Okay. Uh, so right now they are basically, I guess 
to promote their higher, their that more premium side, yeah, they're the, the enterprise users, they will be able to get this at no additional cost. But I guess they're trying to push everybody into that enterprise. Okay. Interesting. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm just surprised of, of the cost. I mean, I suppose for a business, if you are, you know, if you make someone deep, yeah, make your key people, you don't need to roll it out to everybody. But if you, you know, if those people become, uh, you know, two or 5% more productive for an entire year, I suppose that that, uh, that kind of makes up for the difference. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's basically like, you know, it's almost like offloading and having a, an assistant for you. I mean, I guess hence the name co-pilot. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, it's, a, it's really interesting. Well, we'll keep our eyes peeled on that. Um, what else can we talk about here? I'm just going through my tabs. We talk about the Sunday emails. Yeah, this is interesting. So what what is going on with Sunday emails? This is uh Sunday emails are most likely to be to get read. Uh, new research says this is from Fast Company. Yeah, I mean, I, I I thought this was interesting. Like the you know the the open rate is going to be higher for the weekend, and I I don't know. I always thought that uh, you send something on the weekend that you probably aren't going to. Uh, but it, it might be something just to, based on some of the uh, what they've written in here that people, while you know working on uh, the weekends might not be ideal, but some people do do that just from a behavior standpoint and just to kind of get ready for that Monday. So that might be just from a, I don't know, like you think about the the person's journey or their their experience as a from a work standpoint. Um, Unfortunately, we there aren't enough hours in the day, and I don't know if if you like it when you come in Monday morning and you have like a plethora of uh, you know emails in your inbox. It's like just a way to kind of offload and cut down on some of that. Yeah, I mean, I, I can I can understand that. I don't really. I kind of limit the time that I spend or that I allow myself to respond to emails in general. So, um, yeah, yeah. And it was interesting. So they're saying that the highest was uh, from three to six p.m. on a Sunday. The highest average open rate was ninety-four percent, and then the the next highest was six to nine with eighty-six uh, percent. Wow! Yeah. I suppose I could answer all my emails on a Sunday and then just take that time out of Monday. Maybe I don't know. I. I don't know. Yeah, I find it's better to be recharged. I think that the emails that I have to answer on Monday morning or whenever I decide to get to it um, will be better quality responses if I have not worked over that weekend. Probably, I would hope. But who knows? That's, that's I'm of the opinion, theory. like, and this is what I always tell my students uh, is that, uh, you know, just because somebody sends you an email doesn't mean that you're obligated, unless it's something super urgent. To go and respond right away but it's almost like you know we have you get it in your inbox and you got to respond back and if that's the case all you're going to be doing is just responding to emails and not doing actual work and so i you know we've talked about this uh in some episodes where you should you know block off time do kind of batch tasks and so um and in some cases i, I look at it uh somebody sends you an email and you wait a few days 
that issue might be resolved and you don't even have to respond to it. So you've just cut your cut down on the uh, the work just by virtue of waiting with time. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. I, th- I think there's a value to waiting, uh, not responding to things right away and thinking about it. I definitely, I definitely agree with that. Um, is that all we had for articles today? Which is fine. Uh, there was uh, this one that you found, um, this one in AI and education. Oh, I closed my tab. Here, I'll, I'll send it. Hang on a second. So, yeah. oh, the guidance. Yeah, the new guidance from the Department of Education. So, I don't know if you want to. Yeah, so this is more K to twelve based. So it's from EdTech uh, Magazine that focus on K to twelve. So not so much higher ed, but I suppose some of it kind of applies. Which is, it says AI and education on new guidance from Department of Education. So that's the U.S. Department of Education. Um. Uh, they, the article talks about seeing lots of engagement and enthusiasm. Um, so the crux of the article, not to bury the lead, is, you know, what does the, Depart- the U.S. Department of Edu- Education recommend um, in terms of uh, for AI use in the classroom or, how, you know, how to, uh, how to deal with an education? So basically its bullet points are, uh, I mean, some of them are keep humans in the loop. So the highest priority is emphasizing humans in the loop. The official says we want to make sure that educators are involved in all aspects of the integration into the classrooms. Uh, teachers should be included in the procurement and discussions. So how it's going to be used and you know keep people in the loop. Uh, developing new models. So rather than uh, automating existing paper-based processes, AI offers the chance to create new pedagogical models so kind of to your point chris so we're asking for are we asking for rote memorization or are we preparing students to think more critically so maybe we change the expectations of the assignment allow them to use ai so they think more critically about what their output is that seems like a more pragmatic approach and then they also talked about strengthening trust um uh let me just i'm just going through this section here uh, basically making sure that um, students and teachers understand how these tools really work. So do they know how it's being used? Do they know where the data is going? Um, kind of a kind of a privacy take on it. And so they they talked about, you know, how you would incorporate it into the classroom. I didn't find it to be anything revelatory. In fact, I, I kind of went to the original report and, and went through uh, you know some of the um the the more in-depth recommendations and i just i i didn't see anything that we haven't covered already which is why i don't know that it warrants going in-depth into I'll, i can send you the full pdf from the department of education i was looking at this the other day but i think ultimately it, it's broadly about what you said i mean we can't ban the stuff the cat is out of the bag so we have to adapt uh, to how it's being used yeah for sure um that's more or less what we had today in terms of our news segment which is fine it'll be a shorter episode today it tends to be quiet in the summer is there anything else that you want to add i did have a tip but i can i'm happy to save that till later i'm good um yeah i don't know if there's uh anything other like if there are some tips or if some questions came in we can address those 
I get a lot. I mean, occasionally I get questions about, and you and I are primarily Mac users. Um, I've had a, you know, I, I come across, I mean, I'm not a IT person, but like, you know, technical questions come up from students that get in the way of, um, of, of just teaching and doing things like that, right? Like, you know, you, you ask students to collaborate and they don't understand how to open a particular document or something like that. And so there's a, a tech question arises from uh, a pedagogical thing that you're trying to accomplish. So, and I've had quite a few questions about Windows 11. Um, it's not on all of the devices rolled across our institution, but it's the main operating system on uh, all the workstation computers and stuff like that. So there's a writer that I really like, uh, Paul Thorot. He he blogs about the tech industry. I've, I think I've talked about him before, uh, Thorot.com. Other people blog on his website too. I mean, the website is his name and there's other contributors, but he's written a couple of really cool uh, field guides for Windows um, that are very, very comprehensive. And so uh, the, the publisher is LeanPub. LeanPub is a really great platform for um, just finding technical, uh, if you want to learn about coding or any sort of technical books like eBooks, uh, they're really good. It's cool because you can actually buy access to an eBook and you can read it as it's being written. So some of these books are not complete yet uh, and they're kind of unfolding as they go. And so this is one way um, to kind of get access to the book. Uh, the nice thing about this is that they get updated quite a bit, right? Yeah. So Windows 11 Field Guide, uh, I bought this a while ago. The last update was um, the 26th of this month, so July, 2023. And um, it's a 900 and something page guide. You can download a PDF and every time it's updated, you can download a new one, but you can also just read it on their website. And the book is, is cool because it's kind of uh, well, it's like any book, it's indexed, but it has a really in-depth uh, table of contents. So it's very, very easy to skim through it. And so I'm just going to open it up here. So there's kind of an overview of Windows 11, how to install it, how to upgrade, uh, how to personalize it, the desktop, uh, multitasking, uh, you know, how to use the, all the details of the new file explorer, et cetera, et cetera. This is the follow-up to the previous edition, which was the Windows 10 field guide. And so I bought it. It's a it's not free, but it's uh, LeanPub allows you to pay kind of a minimum price, and then you can pay more if you wish. So I paid ten dollars US, which is not very expensive for a book like this. And it's a really good reference guide. I actually keep I keep it bookmarked in uh, my reference guides bookmarks. So if I get stuck and I want to change something in the operating system or Windows, um, I can search the book. I can uh, go through the different sections and. Yeah, I use that as kind of my go-to guide. It's really, really, really well done, um, I think. I think it's just a really excellent book, an excellent reference if you get stuck. I haven't looked on LeanPub to see if there's equivalents for Mac OS, uh, but that may be, there may be as well. Actually, one thing that I just thought of, uh, so just recently for my course, because I'm allowing my students to use AI writers, so one of the things that I've... Uh, requested my students to do if they do use an AI writer that they have to go and document the you know their dialogue with that uh, chatbot and so uh, in the past like when I taught in spring I had them do screenshots 
So one thing in mm. Bing that you can do now, you don't have to do a screenshot anymore. You could, but you can actually export your conversation. And so you can export it as a PDF, a Word document text file. So that's a, kind of a nice uh, thing. And then they just upload that uh, and uh, go into their reflection and all the, uh, the other processes. And uh, I think I've mentioned this in the past, but with ChatGPT, since we're on the topic anyways, but uh, they did roll out a feature, I think a couple of months ago, where as long as you maintain the account and you don't delete that thread, you can share a link to the dialogue that you've had. That's cool. Yeah, I like the idea of being able to link back to that stuff. That's super handy, especially for referencing or being able to download a snapshot of it as a document. That's pretty awesome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I, I think that was part of maybe one of the issues too, is it becomes kind of cumbersome when you have to go and do a bunch of screenshots. And now if you can just, that ease of use to get everything at once. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Well, that's about all I have for today. Uh, how can people contact you, Chris? Uh, you can contact me at my website. Uh, so it's uh, Chris with a K, K R I S H A N S Hans.ca. And uh, I might even have to update my website because I have my Twitter handle there, but I guess Twitter is no longer Twitter. So it's X. <laughs> so. Make sure to send Chris an X. At his X handle. Um, and my name is Eric Christensen, and everything about me can be found on my website. It's just ericchristensen.net. All right, awesome. Sounds good. Take care, Chris. Yeah, you too. You can learn more about EdTech Examined by going to our website, edtechexamined.com. There, you'll find ways to subscribe as well as host information, our social media accounts, and our blog posts. Our blog posts are also published through Medium on the EdTech Examined publication. You can contact EdTech Examined by emailing us at hey at edtechexamined.com. If you have an EdTech question you'd like us to answer on a future episode, you can email us or reach us through Twitter using the hashtag EdTech Office Hours. You can find EdTech Examined on Twitter and Instagram with the handle at EdTechExamined, and we also have a LinkedIn page you can follow. Until next time.